Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 30 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. My guest in this episode is Mike Mugel. He is the founder and CEO of Red Mountain Group. He started his company with one property and a vision that anything is possible and that in every challenge there is opportunity. He has grown his company to over a 4.5 million square foot portfolio with assets in 17 states. Let's hear how he's grown and led this team and company. I would urge all of your listeners to take a hard look at that. There is a time to get out of the way. You know, I, I clearly got, after I did all this, I understood how much I was in the way. Yes, I'm the best at doing this. Yes, I'm the best at doing that. But if I don't give people the opportunity to evolve and get there, they're never going to get there. And I mean, you hear that a million times, but until I really saw it, it's like, wow, I was in the way. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Hey, here with me today is Mike Moogle, the founder and CEO of Red Mountain Group. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for talking with me and my listeners today. So before we dig into the creation and building of Red Mountain Group, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your journey leading up to Red Mountain? Like, where did you grow up? Were you always in real estate? Sure, yes. I grew up in Southern California, uh, specifically the San Fernando Valley. I was a Catholic boy the whole way. Went to Catholic uh, schools and even a Catholic university, University of San Diego. Uh, graduated with a degree in business administration. And while I was in at university, I traveled to about 17 or 18 countries and studied international business. Uh, my intention was to be in international business of some scope and got derailed when I met a couple of guys who were starting up a company called uh, Sperry Van Ness, Mark Van Ness and Rand Sperry, and they were in their startup phase, and it was an investment uh, brokerage house. And uh, got to meet these two gentlemen and kind of fell in love with what they were trying to accomplish and their vision for their own futures. And I was a very young man and uh, just out of college. And so I jumped on board and became uh, an investment broker, which means basically in the real estate world that you are listing investment properties for sale. And we listed office buildings and shopping centers and mobile home parks, apartments, land, industrial buildings, et cetera. And I became their little rock star in uh, the retail uh, division. I had an affinity for retail because it was very dynamic, a fairly sophisticated, uh, a more sophisticated business plan than perhaps apartments or, or office. And uh, I had an affinity for it and uh, became a partner there year four. And in year four, it was 19, uh, what was that, 1990, 91. And the downturn happened of the savings and loan. And they were giving real estate away in two states in the country, in Arizona and Texas. And I uh, ran into those states and found an equity partner and started buying up uh, distressed real estate at uh, five to twenty cents on the dollar. So did you did you leave the other group? Um, did it disband? Did I mean what happened? Because it was I mean it was a tough time at that specific period. It was a very tough time for the real estate world, especially. And as a broker, though, it was actually not a bad time because all the banks and savings and loans were starting to fail and RTC was formed, the Resolution Trust Corporation, and they needed to dispose of 
all that bad real estate. So I actually stayed at, at uh, Sperry Van Ness for another year as a partner, uh, my fourth and fifth year. And then by my fifth year, I owned six shopping centers. Uh, my fifth year at Sperry Van Ness, I owned six shopping centers. And at that time, I just felt the need to step out and become a full-time principal of owning and redeveloping real estate, shopping centers specifically. So when you, and I'm, I'm just curious in which came first. When you purchased that first property in Mesa, Arizona, Yes. Did you, you know, did you think, shoot, I, I better have a company to do this, or did you start the company with the hopes of building a portfolio? It was really, uh, it was the idea at that time was to, as a broker, you're always striving to become a principal. Brokers are obviously transactional, and every year you start over in January, your your book of business, you're looking at the the field, and you haven't put any yards on the board yet. So. Uh, the desire, at least for me personally, was to get out of the brokerage business and become a principal. So I saw that first property, Red Mountain Plaza in, in Mesa, East Mesa, Arizona, as a stepping stone to becoming a principal. Did that mean I was opening a company yet? No, but it was certainly the first terrific, tremendous opportunity to becoming a principal full-time and owning my own company. So still a risk though. I mean, so did you, where'd you get the capital for your first properties? I mean, what was that process like? Well, it was an interesting time because the world was melting down is, is for those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, there was a lot of distress in the market. And there was the difference between the 90s and today, or even in 2008, uh, is in the 90s, there was no money in the marketplace. So uh, your dollar went, the, the, the distance that a dollar went, an investment dollar went in the, in the 90s was just tremendous. So uh, with very little capital in the marketplace, uh, I had access to through my investment brokerage days, I knew a lot of principals who had private family money, let's call it, and they weren't really playing in the investment real estate space. It was more about uh, their generational wealth. They owned real estate, and it was part of their generational wealth, and they were managing that, but they had access to a lot of private cash. And so I accessed some of my uh, long-term relationships, and they became my partners, and we started buying literally at 5 and 10 and 20 cents on the dollar in Phoenix, Arizona, and Mesa, Arizona. So when everybody was panicking, you were purchasing. Uh, it was it was it was truly one of those when there was there was blood in the streets. It was it was amazing. The the just to give your listeners a sense of what was going on at that time, the occupancies in office, industrial, retail, apartments, the occupancy of buildings was fifty percent. No matter where you were, good areas, bad areas, Scottsdale, Central Phoenix, East Mesa, South, it didn't matter where you were, there was fifty percent occupancy. It was an amazing time of distress. And yet, if, if you had the you know, wherewithal and the courage to jump in, the, the, the values that you were buying at were just, just unbelievable. So compare that just for my listeners today. Like, what would it be today, that occupancy level on, on average? Oh, on average, our, our portfolio in Arizona right now is 96% leased across the board. Wow. Yeah. That, what, yeah. A, what a difference. But so, to, give you, to give you some idea of value, we bought one shopping center for $6 per square foot. That's a completed shopping center. You can't buy carpet today for $6 a square foot, but I bought a shopping center for $6 a foot. Today, that would cost you $250 a foot to build it. So that's the kind of value we were buying at. Yeah, and, and I love the capital side of it because I, I know I have some listeners who are in a similar place you, you were 25 years ago. And understanding, you know, just the practical application, I think is helpful to them because, so, you know, how do you even bring in investors? You know, so you go to these friends. So let's say somebody's looking to buy their first property. Um, it could be a duplex. It could be commercial property, whatever it is. Uh -huh. How do they even go about that? The, the first part of that? 
Why would they step into that investment? Is that the question? Yeah, like why would they, and then how would they bring in the partners? Well, it was interesting because of my investment brokerage background, and I and I was I was there, you know, I was a top performer at Sperry, uh, Sperry Venice. I was a top performer over there, so I really understood the investment real estate or the investors uh, of investment real estate, their mindset. So my the way I underwrote real estate in during those years was I figured people who wanted to invest wanted to know how they get out. Not not so much. They weren't afraid to get in. They wanted to know, how do I get out? People are always okay getting in. It's just, if you can't get me out, then I don't want to get in. So my strategy was, whatever we buy, I have to show people a way out. So when we bought Red Mountain Plaza in East Mesa, for a 70,000-foot shopping center with two extra pieces of land, we paid a million three fifty, and 90 days later, I sold a piece of it off, a very small piece, for a million three. So Essentially, all money was out within 90 days of acquisition, and we went on to our next investment. Wow. That's why you would invest, because I could get you out. No, that's exciting, and, and I think that's a great lesson. So, so is the lesson to save your pennies for a market downturn? That is certainly, in my world, in the redevelopment world, there's two parts to that question. Is In the redevelopment world, there's always a downturn. So, for example, right now it's Sears and Kmart. We're, we've done five Kmart's in the past three years. Where you know they're empty, they're blighted. You buy them below mar- you buy them below development cost, and you retenant them and, and bring them back to life. Create job sales tax for the cities. Uh, it's it's a great business model, and it's always there, regardless of what the market's doing. There's always tenants closing, expanding, shrinking, and when they do any of those moves, or real estate just gets old and needs to be redeveloped. So there's always opportunity to buy in a quote-unquote downturn for redevelopment real estate or repositioning of real estate. When the overall economy crashes, those are incredible opportunities to get in. Yes, for example, in 2008, it took a while for a lot of the investment real estate to shake loose, but what was shaking loose in 2008 and 2009 was residential real estate. So we decided to get into the residential side. We bought three or 400 houses and uh, like in Arizona, we bought 66 houses, and the average cost of a home we were purchasing was $27,000. And I kept trying to tell my friends and family friends of mine and just friends in the business, I said, you know, you need to start buying houses in Phoenix because you're, you're paying for a landscape job and the house is for free. <laughs> that's, that's how distressed it got in res- on the residential side at that time. So there's always opportunity. It's just a question of where do you play? So going back to the the whole vision part, what did you envision for your company when you first started? Not what it is now. What were you thinking when you first started? Like, what did you want out of it? Because it reminds me of like Ben and Jerry's heard in a podcast where they said, you know, we just wanted to start an ice cream shop. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we didn't think we we're going to start this kind of worldwide empire of ice cream. So what did you envision? Um, my really, my vision wasn't so much on the business side as it was on the culture side. So when I started a company and and I hired my first few people, the first thing I did is sit down and set the culture, the tone, the leadership was going to be that we're going to have relationships, that it's not going to be, I'm cutting the bottom 20% of people at all times. It's not going to be just about uh, hitting the numbers and completing by the dates. All that has to be done. That's a given. You You have to make the numbers. You have to make your profits. Otherwise, of course, you can't hire anybody. But given that, I want this to be, we're going to spend 10 hours a day together, 8 to 12 hours a day together, whatever your your work schedule permits. And I want to have a relationship with the people that I work with. If you're having a tough time with your marriage, and I need to know about that because if you're my partner in this deal-making process, I need to know that you may not be able to show up in your full capacity during that period of time. If you're 
your wife's having breast cancer treatments or if you're having uh, a bypass or, you know, or, or your kid's graduating college or good things as well, not just the, the difficult things in life. But I want to be able to have a relationship with you because as human beings, we remain human regardless of how much of a face we want to put on for work. And so I think for a business to operate in the, uh, let's call it the 90% zone where you're really hitting on all cylinders, that we all have to know each other and have a relationship with each other and be able to talk through our differences and be able to celebrate and come together in our huge wins and opportunities as well. So I really put an emphasis on that first and said, if we do that and we work together and we work in that 90% zone, then the results will fall where they fall and we'll be, we'll be great. Yeah. So first of all, love all of that. I mean, and I think that's so important for the listeners, you know, for my listeners to hear because, and it goes back to how we get those people though, doesn't it? Because how, how did you bring people onto your team that would fit into that category to get them to that 90%? Well, I think what's interesting, you know, our belief is that we don't listen to what people say. We, we watch their feet. That's a big saying around Red Mountain. You know, everybody promotes, everybody can sell themselves or sell the deal or whatever they're selling. But the real truth, you know, the real truth is, you know, what are your feet doing? What, what are you actually doing to back that up? So we believed if we walked our talk, we would attract the talent. We would attract the people that we wanted to hire. And literally for the first, I would say, 10 years of the company, we did not hire anybody. They walked through the door or got referred in. Yeah. I love referrals. I mean, good people typically know good people. And so exactly. you're, you're, you're in that, when you're in those circles. So who was your first hire? My first hire was a woman by the name of Carol Harder out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, she's still with us today. And in fact, she is the, uh, for lack of a better term, she's the godmother of my children. Um, we've become <laughs> that, that close family friends, her kids as well. I've watched her kids grow up. She's watching mine grow up and, uh, what a great relationship it's been for the past 26 years, however long it's been. It's been a long time. So how did, how did you bring new people in? Like, so you say you got them through referrals. Did you actively seek that? I mean, did you go to different people and, and tell them you're looking? No. We, I mean, I know this is it, – it, um, again, by focusing on the culture, about in the first year, maybe year and a half, as, you, as I acquired more employees, right, as I started to hire more employees – the issues begin, right? The humanity starts and the issues begin. And I, I just had a, I think a good gut uh, at a young age that I was going to need a resource to help me work through the humanity uh, of having employees and relationships. So I brought on a mentor of mine, uh, Lyndon Crow is his name, and he runs a company called Productive Learning. Uh, it used to be called Productive Learning and Leisure. It's called Productive Learning now. And we would have team buildings on a monthly basis to keep our culture set and work on our relationships and work on the business. And we, we put so much emphasis, time, and energy into this. We would literally, literally attract people. When we would show up, we, we had a belief, we still have a belief, that how we show up will literally attract people to us, and they will be coming to us first versus us having to solicit them. Okay, so talk to me about this team building. So once a month, what did that entail? So we had... Uh, my mentor's group, he has, uh, I don't know how many employees he has in his company, but as we grew, uh, starting at, I think we had four employees or five employees the first time we did a team building, we'd get together and do all these exercises for team development, for personal relationships, for taking responsibility, for commitments. How committed are you? We did one, one I remember one training was about contagious feelings, where it was fantastic exercise. We had about 50 employees at that time, and 
there was five tables of 10 people and each one of his five trainers would go infect a group with a different emotion. So he started with one table with frustration, one was adoration, one was this. And you could see that whoever was leading the group would literally spread that, that emotion right through the group as they led their table. So all kinds of different exercises and just a constant work on the culture, constant work on relationships, communication, commitment, and process at some points as well. So from the culture perspective, I mean, it sounds like you're doing it very deliberately. Um, very. But what did you do to cr- like cultivate it and protect it? Because, I mean, as you start to grow, you know, mm-hmm. you get larger numbers, it becomes more difficult to do that. So we, we did it the whole way through, uh, all the way up until 155 employees. We were spending probably a million to million and a half dollars a year on those team developments. We would have one every month of team building, and when every quarter we would have a three-day offsite at a five-star hotel. That's how committed we were. I mean, we, we this was a full-time, we'd be shut down. The business would be shut down a, a, a considerable amount of time a year working on ourselves and our relationships. So they had to feel that, though. You were investing in those people, and they felt it. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, I mean, to, to give you a sense of our scale, uh, at... We went from 43 million in assets to a billion in seven years, and we did it organically. For the most part, 80, 90% of the money was just the same money being recycled again and again and again and again. So we've done 325, 350 redevelopments of shopping centers in this country, uh, all over the country. And to scale like that in a brick-and-mortar business, a non-technology business, the only way, in my opinion, to get that done was through the culture. I literally managed the company through the culture. So what are some of the ideas? If you had to give some advice to people who are looking to improve the culture of their companies, what would you, what would you give them? I, I, again, I think culture is what ultimately makes your business, saves your business, and, and provides longevity and, and uh, structure to your business. I mean, policy and procedures are great to write down, but effectively nobody follows those. It's your culture that manages your business. It's your culture that gets people to buy in or not to buy in. So I would just say number one is you have to make that a huge priority. You know, in your in your when you're establishing a company or turning a company around or just growing a company, that that culture has to be first and foremost in the minds of the the CEO and, and or ownership of the company. Outside resources are fantastic. Number two, I you put a program together, you commit hard dollars to it. You commit hard dollars to it, and then number three, you get leadership buy-in by certain key figures in your company. HR needs to be a part of that. Uh, CEO and probably one other key position, and they hold the torch, and and that stays at the forefront of the company. So how how would you define culture? Because I feel like it's a buzzword sometimes. You know, people just talk about culture, culture, culture. But how would you actually define it? What is it to you? I, I think for me, it's how do you want to be treated as a human being, an employee, a partner, however your company's structured. How do the people who work for you or with you, how do they want to be treated? And by the way, your customers, obviously, you know, you're, you're the people you do business with. How does everyone want to be treated? when they do business with me, meet me, and, and or be in relationship with me? How do I want to show up in that process and, 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 when, and inside and outside of all of our relationships? That is the culture of how we do business. That is the culture of how we want to belong with and to each other in this vision of, in our case, Red Mountain Retail Group. So I appreciate that more than ever because in my speeches, I always talk about, I'm like, when people feel like they're appreciated, when they feel like they're part of something, because a lot of times they're not getting that at home. And so we get to be that person. We get to be that environment. We get to be, and when it's real, what do they want to give us? Everything. 
Well, then, and to back that up, I gave 5% of the company to the employees. So 5% of every deal the employees get. Yeah, so so they're feeling it in their pocketbooks. They're feeling it emotionally. You're investing in them. We took we took 220 people to Italy for 10 days. Or no, I think it was eight days. See, there are people listening right now that want to come work for your company. <laughs> right <now>. Because... <laughs> Well, I figured we had we had a banner run till 2008, and in 2008, actually, uh, it was actually inspired by the John Hancock Company. We do quite a bit of business with Jan, John Hancock Life Insurance, and they took us to the uh, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in uh, Torino, Italy. And my wife and I had such an extraordinary time, and I came back and I was sharing with a group at a team building about the, this incredible opportunity, and literally a woman from accounting stood up, and our culture is such that Anybody gets to ask anybody a question. There are, there are no walls. There are no doors. The organization is flat. If anybody has a question, a legitimate question, challenge, threat, opportunity, you can ask anybody any question. So she stood up in the team building as she listened to me tell the story about Torino and, and the people that we were with with John Hancock and we were driving on these buses in the middle of winter and all the fun we were having. And, and she looked and she asked the question in front of 150 people. She stood up and said, well, when do we get to go? And I was at the front of the room, and I, it caught me completely off guard, and I thought, what courage this young lady just had to stand up in front of 150 other employees and ask the owner of the company, well, how, basically, how come you, you guys at the top, how come you're the only ones who get to go? And I thought, I thought to myself in that moment, I said, well, that's a really interesting thought. So I put it out there, and again, we were big believers in if you put it out there, it can happen. Our, our tagline is anything is possible. So she put it out there. I said, okay, that's a challenge to me. Great. In two years, we're going to Italy. So two years later. Uh, and what year was that? That was 2006 when she stood up and we went in 2008. 2008. And we all went to Italy, their spouses included. There was 220 people and we all went to Italy for eight days. And it was just an extraordinary time, an extraordinary event. Yeah, and and what what a, a great adventure for all those people. I mean, that's- And by the way, I asked my partners, all my partners who have invested with us, over the years, I said, you know, you guys have had such an extraordinary run. I would like to have you pay for half of this of the employees. Uh, so one month of distributions, we're going to cut in half if you guys all sign off on this. And they all agreed. They said, you know what? You guys have done an extraordinary job. They deserve it. And they paid for half of it. Well, there you go. And 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 do people like going together? I mean, you know, I, I don't – some people probably say I can't imagine vacationing with their coworkers, but it sounds like everybody was getting along. Everybody was – It was amazing. Yeah. It was an absolutely amazing trip. Amazing trip. Probably brought them even closer together. Right. And, Correct. Yeah, Correct. to bring them. So, so how, do you, how do you know if people that you have, you know, if they're not a good fit for your company? And then how do you, how do you let those people go? Because, I mean, eventually you're going to – you know, not every hire is going to be Correct. perfect. You know, and I, I think for us, it shows up pretty quick. There's not, you, you have to want to be in a culture like this where you want to have a relationship. You're, you're not coming here to do your job and then just go home because that will not, not fly and not work here. The one thing I think that I struggle with personally and, and have looked at for years and continue to work on and organizationally since I'm at the top, you know, the organization has struggled with it over time is, you know, we're, we're too slow to let go because we believe we can get that person, you know, there, so to speak. And a lot of times, of course, what you just said, you can't get that person there. They don't want to go there in the first place. So, uh, you know, then then you just have to let them go. Yeah, and it's you're never going to have that 100% retention. But, man, it, when you do get a bad person, it's like a cancer eating away the body. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes they just – you eventually have to just cut it out, and then it makes everything better again. Whoever, whoever coined that phrase, uh, onboard terrorist, it's, it's, it's really true. It's not good for you. It's not good for them personally. It's, it's not even good for them. They shouldn't be here because they don't want to be here. So – 
it is true that I, I believe I'm, I'm a, a believer in, you know, you're helping them as much as you're helping yourself by, by letting them go. They'll, they'll be on to something hopefully that they want to be a part of versus not a part of. And, and so, you know, business is humming along, it sounds like, in the early 2000s. And then yep. 2007, 2008 happened, right? I'd say even toward the end of 2006. September of 2008 was yeah. really was the time for us for in the shopping okay. center. Yeah. So yeah. Can, can we talk about that? Because when we met at that Vistage meeting, you told me the story of how you were standing in the parking lot yep. at a pretty low time in your life yep. and in your business, yep. knowing that you had to fire like 70%. 100%. 80% of your staff, I mean, you know, up yeah, to 100, 100, 100 yeah, people yeah. of those 150. 155, yep. And you got some advice that day. What what was that advice? Well, it was interesting. So the journey of the, I always, this part of the talk, I, I call the journey of the entrepreneur. I think every entrepreneur is that, you know, what do they call that? The chief cook, bottle washer, and, and waiter, or whatever, whatever the term is. You know, you're everything in the beginning as the entrepreneur. You're starting everything. You can't afford anything. So, you, you know, if, if you don't have access to, hot money as these high tech companies now, you know, you're not burning money fast enough. Well, you know, in the real estate world, we don't have that, right? So you, you bootstrap it in the beginning. And so as the entrepreneur, you're, you're trying to put it all together. And as you start getting a few assets under your belt and as you get some revenues going, you hire some people and you're handing more and more off. And then you run through your ramp up phase. You know, you go from 43 million assets to a billion. And then you have a fairly large company with, you know, 90 shopping centers across the country. And, you know, you have a real company. And, and at some point in time, you're adding structure along the way, but also the leadership and the structure needs to reflect differently than it did in the ramp-up phase. So at that time in 2008, I was still the, I would say I was still the COO and I was still the president and the CEO of the company. You know, all three positions were under my my hat, really. I was really running the company day-to-day. I was working in the company. And when the downturn came, I had a mentor. One of my mentors was talking to me. We were going to get a cup of coffee and I was telling him my woes about four of our lenders had gone out of business. $150 million of our loans were being called because the lenders were gone. The loans are no longer good. I, I, it was just a very interesting time and very difficult time. And I was telling him all these woes, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and I said, well, that's an interesting response to my woes. And he said, you don't see it, do you? I said, no, I don't see I could tell you right now I don't see much of anything, <laughs> to tell you the truth. He said, this is your opportunity. He said, this is your opportunity to let your team that you've been grooming all these years, that you have your hands on, to let your team step up and be there for you. You're not good in this space anyways. You're not good in the irrational space. In, in the banking business, it got very, very irrational. And I'm a fairly logical, it's got to make sense kind of guy. He goes, you're not good at this anyways, this part of, of the business and this business cycle. He goes, so why don't you let your team step up for you, be there for you, and this is the opportunity for them to take control of the company, you to step back and really become the visionary and sets the vision for the organization. You know, this is your time. This is your opportunity. He goes, now you might be risking in your mind letting the company fail completely. He goes, but in reality, that's probably not the case. I know you. I know what the energy and time and effort you've put into your people. He goes, I think this is their time to step up. And for whatever reason on that day, I heard it. I heard it as clear as, I mean, it was just, I heard it very clearly. And I pulled the team together the, the next day. And I said, okay, this is, these are my thoughts. This is what we're going to do. And uh, so I also who, got the, who was in anyways. that team, though? Was it, the whole, it wasn't the whole company. It was a leadership team. See, yeah, senior management team, the senior management team. And so my, uh, my COO at the time uh, really stepped up. Uh, he was also our in-house legal counsel. My CFO, our asset management division, you know, those people all stepped up and 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 uh, took a lot right off my plate. 
took took the vast majority of the mess off of my plate so I could focus on the bigger issues. So I can tell you for a lot of leaders, that's not easy. You know, it only took the world falling apart for me to do it. So <laughs> I understand I understand that comment very well, I think. Um, and because I have the benefit of seeing what's on the other side of it, I, I can only, I would urge all of your listeners to take a hard look at that. There is a time to get out of the way. You know, I, I clearly got, after I did all this, I understood how much I was in the way. Yes, I'm the best at doing this. Yes, I'm the best at doing that. But if I don't give people the opportunity to evolve and get there, they're never going to get there. And I mean, you hear that a million times, but until I really saw it, it's like, wow, I was in the way. So I talk about that in my speeches all the time. And you you heard me speak. I mean, there's that one point where I say, hey, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to be the most important question asked of you. But And there's no right or wrong, but do you want to be an owner or do you want to be a manager? Because there's right. a difference. Right. And a lot of times... You know, if you're in the Bahamas or you're at a family vacation or you're somewhere else, if you're the decision maker, they're waiting for you to get back, which means it's slowing everything down. And so I appreciate your Correct. comment there of like, you know, get out of the way. And hopefully my listeners realize that it doesn't have to take the world falling apart to realize that. that but I, I also think the, the ego of being an entrepreneur, and there's nothing wrong with that statement. I mean, I think the entrepreneurial phase of a company is, is exciting and rambunctious and challenging and threatening and, and opportunistic and, and rewarding. And it's all those things. And I think there's an, almost an addiction. The ego is an addiction to, I like that hit. I like that hit. I like that hit. And if I give this up, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And I think a lot of leaders, male, female, whoever, have a challenge you know, letting that go. Right, and and that's maybe that attitude in the beginning is probably part of the strength, isn't it? I mean, because Absolutely. you need that toughness, and you need that. I'm going to get it done. It's going to happen, regardless of whether it's me or anyone else. We're going to get through it. I, I do have to tell you, I, I look back at those seven years, and when we went from 43 million to a billion, and I even look back at my at our own accomplishments, and I go, I, I don't even know how we did that. I mean, it's just it look. I look back at it now, and it's fun to look at. But it takes that entrepreneurial attitude of anything is possible, and we're going to do it. You know, we're doing this. So how would you define so, – so if you had to define how did you lead through the worst of the worst, you would say that you released? I mean, you, you, you gave it up to others or how would you define it? I think the leadership yeah, – I mean, I'm, it, maybe this is the, the, not, not, not the uh, most poetic way to say this, but it wasn't about me. I got out of the way. It became about the group and the group's, the group's potential, and it became about leading – from, uh, not, I wasn't leading any, how do I say this? I mean, clearly I was still the owner and and the CEO and setting the vision and doing the larger things, but it became about the team that, you know, it was, it was so important that the team takes responsibility, sets the commitment. You know, so my leadership style became about the team oriented versus, you know, I'm the owner of the company, you know, the entrepreneurial vision, I think it became more of the team vision. Well, only because I went through that with my real estate title company in Florida, you know, I mean, it, it was devastating. It was so difficult because, but I also think that you, your, your mindset there, that the, what the step that you took to get those people involved, were those people involved when it came to, to making the cuts? Yes. Uh, everybody, everybody was involved on the senior management team. Yes. They're involved in every step of the way in our reorg, basically. Yes. Yeah, which which makes it different because if you came in and just started firing people, they would be like, what the heck is going on? Am I next? I mean, that was the biggest challenge for me was just getting people, even the good people, to realize, hey, am I at risk here? But everyone yep. was at risk. I mean, I was at no, risk. And, and my, my team was, I think I had a phenomenal team during the downturn. And, and my, my COO and now president uh, had a very 
he had a great belly when it came to seeing the bandwidth of people and, and how he let people go and who he kept. And, and some of the decisions he made, I totally disagreed with. And yet, I, let, I mean, I just let him go. And he was right. He was absolutely right because he saw that in that downturn with less people, that that bandwidth was so important and underwriting the person's bandwidth was just going to be key to our success. And I, I think that was very, very, very helpful. I'm curious, did you maintain any relationships with people after they were let go? Like, were any people brought back? Absolutely. I still I still get emails, cards, letters about people in their time at Red Mountain and how it's changed their lives or how they've gone into other opportunities or how they started their own companies. And I, I don't think there's a person who walked through here who wasn't affected in some way, for sure. Well, remember, those people went with you to Italy. So, I mean, you, you know, you were yeah. giving them it, – it wasn't just the work experience. And that's what I try to say that, you know, unfortunately, and this is a true statement, you know, it's a numbers game. If you look at the amount of hours that we'll spend with these people in our work lives – you know, waking, waking hours. It's probably more than you do with your own family. That, that's so probably accurate. Why yeah. would you not want them to be engaged and happy and educated and challenged and appreciated, all of these different things along the way? Yeah, it made, it made no sense to me either. Just what you just said is I'd walk into other organizations coming out of college and you see people be miserable. I'm like, why, why would I want to spend five minutes here? I, I, why would anybody want to spend five minutes here? So I, I got that early on too. And I think when I went on, I went on this program called Semester at Sea in, in, uh, during uh, college, where I went to 13 countries on that trip for four months, and a lot of more third world countries. And, and you just got that all throughout the world, that it's all about people, it's all about relationships. And, you know, try to work as hard as you can to have great relationships, great experiences, because that's pretty much it in life. So why would you want to go walk in a door of some organization where you could tell there's a threatening guy at the top, <laughs> the, the culture is 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 razor on razor's edge and i you know i just that for me just personally for me that didn't work and maybe for the other companies like uh ge capital back in the day you know what's his name uh jack welch jack welch i mean you know cut the bottom 20 percent at all time that, that that's an interesting culture I, I wouldn't want to work there but you know that's an interesting culture yeah, and there's, there's, you know, Steve Jobs, there's different leaders along the way that, and, you know, sometimes those people survive and do well just because of the the actual product. I mean, people love Apple, so they're willing of to course. put up with something to be part of that. But, you know, for smaller companies and, and that aren't Apple, you know, and, and names like that, I mean, the culture just becomes so important. So with some space, I but guess. But I, I, believe, I believe it applies to big cultures as well. I mean, I think the culture of Apple at some point was product. You know, cult, the, the the technological edge of that Steve Jobs himself and the product, the evolution of that product, was their culture, and people who were attracted to that would tolerate you know whatever they want need to tolerate. Jack Welch's team, you know, GE Capital, look where they are. I mean, right now they're that that company is torn apart and almost you know it's not it's a shell of what it used to be. Right? It's very interesting. So. But that's a byproduct of how the culture that you create exactly. and how you lead and how you treat people. And Exactly. Uh, my dad has a saying, every dog has his day. Well, you know, regardless, yep. you got you to gotta still – it is about relationships. We are still in a – you know, people around you and the how do they feel. The people get you there. The yeah. people get you there. No matter what they do with technology, the people get you there. So, so with some space and perspective between then and now, what did you learn having to lead through such a disaster of a time? Like, is there anything that you would have done differently? No, I think for me, that was the, you know, it was my evolution as a leader, it was an evolution as a CEO, as an owner. I do like the hands-off place that I sit now. It's so much more fun to do strategy now as compared to the old days. It was like I was fitting strategy in in the old days, and now uh, the vast majority of my job is strategy, and, and I really, really enjoy that. It gives me a lot more time to um, spend time in relationship in different ways, too, with my senior management team, which I really enjoy that as well. Uh, crisis management, 
you know, people ask me, how did you get through that and what style of leadership? And, and my response was, it was very much like a, I was a football guy in high school and, and it was very much like high school football. It was like, and we all come back to the huddle. We talk about a play. We all break. We all go do our jobs. And at the end of that play, we come back to the huddle and we re-strategize and you just take it day by day, hour by hour and over the months and a couple of years in that case. And we got right through it. Um, and looking back, we even, we even did that pretty darn well. So, uh, although when you're going through it, you don't know how well you're or not well you're doing it. So it, th- those are interesting times. They're gut check times. Yeah, hindsight is interesting. Is the culture of your company different pre-2008 than it is post-2008? Oh, absolutely, because I'm so out of the, the day-to-day, almost non-existent in the day-to-day, uh, handed it off. And, you know, I, I, I let my senior management team set their own culture. I did not demand that the way I was running the culture is the way they had to run the culture. So they've done different things, and I've enjoyed watching how they've evolved the culture. And so... Uh, I think as every leader steps into the their, their spot in the sunshine, as you said, you know they get to 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 experience what they want to create and how they want to create it, and uh, it's been fun to watch. And there's some guardrails around it, meaning people always have to come first, the relationships always have to be here. We hold the tenets of our original vision, but outside that, how they do it and the ways in which they do it that is is up to them. And it's it's certainly different, but it's it's uh, it's just an evolution of what was already here. So clearly, you're investing in the people, and I love that. In our time together, you talked a lot about the importance of an emphasis of putting in, you know, time into those people. So if you don't mind just digging a little bit deeper, okay? Sure. What does that look like specifically? So I know you talked about trips and, that, and the, those leadership events, but what are the ways you and the company invest in your people? Well, I mean, well, the first, I mean, besides all the team buildings and things like that, we will sit down, you know, there's a, there's a value in our uh, organization about open and honest communication. And when I was referencing whether you're going through something personally, professionally, or whether I have a relationship issue with you here at the office. So if, if for example, if, if two people in the organization, two departments are just not getting there, not getting along, and there's clearly some issues at hand, there's some personalities at hand, anyone in our organization has the right to call that out and saying, you're now affecting my job. So now I'm going to call, I'm getting with the COO, the president, or the CEO, or the CFO, senior management team people, and we're going to sit down and have a facilitated conversation between these two departments or these two people because they're now in our way. We can't do our jobs effectively, and the relationships are stressed, and that's not part of our culture. So we're going to sit down and have that conversation, as difficult as it may be. If it's so hot and so heavy that senior management can't get through it, we will bring an outside facilitator in and have a facilitated conversation. You know, so these road, these road we call them uh, speed bumps, you know, we get over these speed bumps, basically. So I like that a lot. So is that discussed even in the interview process so that people you're interviewing understand this this Absolutely. type of communication? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how do you, is there any measurement to that you use to make sure that people are getting enough investment? Well, it, it's an interesting we – we're a volume – this is interesting. So in the real estate world, mo- most real estate companies, uh, they, they do a few deals a year. Well, Red Mountain is a volume shop, believe it or not. Some years we'll do 22 redevelopments. You know, that's almost two a month. And each development takes a couple of years. So our culture, our efficiency, let's call it, our culture will show up in our inefficiency. If we're not completing projects, as we're coming through our process of two years or 18 months to two years, we measure how we're completing projects. And if we're not getting to our projects and we're behind, that's all a function of our culture. That's all a function of our relationships inside the company and outside the company. 
if you can't get through a city and you can't get the results, then our culture would say, okay, everybody has communication devices today. When's the last time you've gone face-to-face, sat down, bought that city official a cup of coffee and said, look, I've got an issue. I want to share with you. I'm trying to create jobs. I'm trying to create sales tax for your city. I need your help. Can we sit down and have a, you know, a relationship conversation because what we're doing is not working? Yeah, see, you know, th- this whole process is so interesting. Did you did you read Science of Success by the Koch brothers? No. Because you know, because that is exactly the challenge process in the Koch um, MBM, the market-based management. And it's just, I think it's brilliant the way you do that and the way you communicate with others and, and, and even include the people that you're working with. So it's not just your staff, but those that you work with. Well, it's so interesting because in today's world, as, you know, I'm finding this, we're, we're, we're evaluating this right now and we're observing, this is probably a better way to say that, we're observing how even our senior people have become addicted to the, the technology. And even my most senior people who know the culture know, they know the words, you go face-to-face, they know the word is relationship. And yet, because technology is so prevalent in the world, they're unconsciously, not consciously, but unconsciously redefining what relationship means. So in some of our deal-making when these issues come up and we'll say, okay, so, and you had that conversation when? Like, well, I sent him a text last night. I said, you know, let's go back and ask the question again. So you had the conversation when? They even hear the question different these days, right? It's like, no, conversation is not a text. A conversation is not an email. A conversation is voice to voice over the phone. And of course, a great conversation, the, the unbelievable opportunity in today's world is face to face. I think it's the greatest low hanging fruit in the world is getting your people to go face-to-face. If your organization sells face-to-face, if you sporadically go to your clients face-to-face, buy them cups of coffee, spend time face-to-face, you're going to be a hero out there. I remember I met a guy, you know, billionaire out of Texas, had this huge company, lots of loca- 100 locations, you know, throughout the state. And I remember he said his son had taken over the company. And he said, his son thought he was doing everything wrong because his son put in like, you know, uh, district managers and regional managers and all these other people. And he goes, and they had all these reports that they had to generate. And finally he stopped and he goes, Dan, who's talking to the customer? Right. I don't think anyone's talking to the customer. They're too busy generating and reports now, and doing and everything now the other, else. And the other way you now have to ask that question is how are they talking to the customer? Yeah. You know, you, before you used to, everybody used to call or see them, but you got to say, now, how are you talking to your customer? Yeah, no, definitely. And I love your whole point on like that, how that's redefined communication, the text part. Absolutely. Because yeah, no, getting in, getting in there in, in front of them makes a big difference. So you, you and I met at a Vistage Worldwide event. So obviously staying fresh and cutting edge and, and developing is important to you. Yep. What do you do personally to make sure that you're learning and staying fresh? I also take a, a class called Conscious Leadership. Uh, I've been attending now for about three or four years. That's run through Productive Learning as well. There's about uh, 10 or 12 other CEOs in that group as well, focusing on becoming conscious leaders, and there's a lot involved in that. Uh, I also believe in, uh, I call him the CEO CEO. So I have uh, a counselor that I see. I always say that the CEO needs somebody to complain to. So once a month, I go in and see a counselor and talk about professional, personal, whatever's going on in my life. I just believe that uh, I need to walk the talk as well. So if I'm asking people to reach out and get help, then I, I think you know I owe it to them and I owe it to myself to do the same thing. And how did you find that counselor? Um, I was introduced to him. Boy, it's been so long. That's a great question. It was a referral. I don't remember who referred me to him, but it was a great referral. And I, I actually, this gentleman, uh, Douglas Kahn is his name. I really, really enjoyed this guy. And he's one of the smartest people I know. So he brings a lot to my life at this point. I've been with him for a lot of years. But uh, it's just that he's a great guy. He gives me a great different perspective. 
And, you know, we're so in it in the world and trying to slay dragons. And, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's just great to have a perspective that it spins your head around. And you go, you know, that's a great comment. Great point. So, so yeah, I, I try to stay very involved in personal growth and uh, in my life at, at all times. My wife and I also take some uh, relationship classes from time to time. A couple times a year, we'll do that. And uh, so it's a big part of our life. So I like that you clarify, uh, and to clarify, you, you said he's a counselor, not a business mentor. Correct. Yeah, so that's 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 a big difference from a mindset from your perspective. It gives me and it gives me a perspective that it's so clean. You know, the guys in business are always looking from the business perspective. Well, I don't necessarily for the CEO CEO. I, I don't necessarily want that business perspective. I want more of the look at me, how I'm operating, how I'm interacting personally, my relationships. You know, and, and just talk about you know for, come come at me from that perspective. So I just love. I, I just think it's awesome that you know for someone in a high level leadership position to talk about seeing a counselor. I mean, that's just a realization that we don't have all the answers and that we, we need help all along the way. Are, are there any routines that you have, like daily routines that you do? Uh, I work out, you know, um, pretty typical, you know, work out three to four times a week. Um, I, I do a gratitude list every morning in the shower. I do do that. I think... Uh, Tell me about that. I, I just, for me, it's important. Um, the most beautiful thing about Red Mountain for me personally now is as the uh, owner, creator, let's say, is the give back. And, 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 and again, I think I was hugely impacted, not I think, I know I was hugely impacted by going around the world as a student and seeing all these people in India and Sri Lanka and uh, Indonesia at the time. And, and you see how people struggle in the world and, you know, whether it's for their daily meal or whether it's for a roof over their head or whether it's for clothing or, you know, that, that happens on a daily basis in most of the world. And, so part of my business plan had to be a give back. As I reflect on my life, every time I've gone for the money, just for the money, whether it's a deal or whether it's, if you just go for the money and there's no give back to the world, it always fails for me. It, the project fails, the the deal I don't wind up buying, or it, it it can't just be about the money. So the greatest thing about redevelopment is, you know, there's always this give back. You're taking this old blighted piece of real estate, like in Oxnard, we just did a, a Kmart and, and a supermarket that have been vacant for nine years. And, you know, this poor neighborhood up in, in a key piece up in Oxnard, have been vacant for nine years. We bring in Smart and Final uh, Extra Supermarket. We bring in LA Fitness, Starbucks, Burger King, you know, Phoenix Salons, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, all of a sudden there's uh, 500 jobs on site, which there's a two to one multiplier. So that's a thousand jobs created. Uh, the property's beautiful. And we start getting cards and letters and emails from the neighborhood saying, you know, you brought up our home values. Thank you very much. You brought so much to our community. So that give back. So, you know, every morning I'm so grateful. I, I can't just, my, my mind is, works in a way that I don't want to just take from this world. I also want to give. And so I always, for me, that just that gratitude list is like, I don't, I don't want to take for granted anything, you know. So every morning I do a gratitude list and whether that's my eyesight or whether that's the deal we just closed or whether that's the new relationship or my wife or my kids or whatever, um, I just like to stay grounded in gratitude. So do you do anything with that? Do you call them? Do you tell them that you thought about them that morning? Oh, that's an interesting thought. No, I haven't had that thought, but that's a good one. I like so, that. So I talk about that a little bit and, and just, you know, I say, do you make gratitude calls? So if you take two people personally, professionally each day that, that change your life and call them, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Because, I mean, how good is that to feel? I, I used to call my debate coach and every month and tell him how he changed my life. And he would answer the phone. He'd say, Dan, I love these calls. I love him. Thank you. He'd, Great. Re he'd retire. I will, I will put that in. I will incorporate that into my daily. I appreciate that. Thank no, you. No, listen. It, you know, I, I just appreciate the fact that you're you're thankful because 
and, and I talk about this, and you know, you started out talking about it traveling around the world and seeing that, you know, we think we're at the bottom of the barrel. The barrel goes so much deeper, doesn't it? Oh, my Lord. And, and, and so it's not just, because we're not hunting for food every day, and I mean literally hunting Liter- for food. Literally, We, we right, manufacture literally. problems. We yep. literally make them up. You know, traffic and, you know, weather and things. That, a lot of them are things we can't even control. And so I, I love that you're just trying to find the good in what you're doing. And, and, and I, I encourage my listeners to really take that to heart, to really each day find the good in what's going on around you because there is good. It's just sometimes we like to focus on all the debris flying instead of the opening in front of us. Yeah, we're, I think we're very, very lucky in this country. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in uh, Orange County, California. I live in a bubble over here, you know, just like the major cities. A lot of us live in bubbles. And, you know, I think I like the thought of being grateful about that. So, I mean, uh, it, I, it works for me. Let's just say that. So is there a time, can you tell a story in your life when you weren't leading well? Um, I mean, like when, when it was really, you know, really bad, because I think, was there a significant failure in, in leadership that you had? I think what, yeah, I, I'll, I'll say it this way is I look back in my, I think as a, as a uh, human being, uh, when you experience, when I, I'll just speak for myself. When I experienced a lot of success, so you go from the years uh, 91 through 2007, really, that run is such a long run that the line starts to move and I didn't know it. So what does that, what does that mean? That means that at some point, I remember saying this actually at some point, like it's too easy. It got too easy. Everything was too easy. Everything was going right. I mean, there's, you know, how long can you go and everything's so right. And I even remember saying, I look forward to a downturn, like I'm going to slay the drag. And I remember, I remember becoming arrogant or more arrogant about success or what we'd accomplish as a group. And I, and I really believe that that's why, the, the count, that's why my counselor, that's why I need another perspective because the, I reached a level of hubris, I think, at some point where I, I, I don't want to take it out of context here. It's not like I was some crazy man walking through the hall saying, let's go, you know, slay the world. But I certainly took, I was willing to take on larger risks because there was so much success in the past. It's like, it wasn't how, how could I not, not succeed or there's no way I could fail, but it was, it was tempting fate, so to speak. There was a level of hubris that it didn't need to exist. And although the people still came first, I, I jeopardized, you know, the whole, relationship, our whole, our whole model, the whole Red Mountain setting, I jeopardized or threatened that by having that level of hubris. So, uh, I think, and I, you know, I look back and go, you know, could I have changed that? I don't know that I could have changed that even if people told me that because, because of the age I was at, I don't, I don't know. I'm 53 now. What, what about when, how old were you when that happened? Um, Let's see. Well, it's been, let's see, so it's 18 now, so that'd be 30. So, I mean, let's say my, you know, early 30s, was I ready to hear that, you know, you're you're, you're starting to get a little big for your britches and <laughs> take on a little too much risk. I'm, I'm not sure I would have heard it. You know, I just don't think I would have heard it. But once it happened, once the downturn happened, I got it. I'm like, oh boy. Oh boy. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Did I, I put us in a very interesting position. So, yeah, that level of hubris, that level of of uh, and 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 I I think that happens with human beings. Back to humanity. I I think if you have success too long, you know the line moves. You don't even know it moves, and it, it's just because 
it's very interesting. So unless you have grounded people, I mean, maybe that's what happens in politics, right? They go, people go in with the best intentions and they, they get immersed in that, that culture and all of a sudden the line moves and they don't even know it moved and, you know, it just does. And I think that the lesson there is, is to, especially for younger leaders that are listening to this podcast, is to surround yourself with people that you trust that are going to give you accurate feedback, that are going to give you real feedback to say, yep. and then to listen to them, to take it yeah. to heart. And, 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 and so that matters and really makes a difference in the way that we perceive others and then perceive ourselves if we're getting that good feedback. Yep. So back to the people for a second, just because I'm, I'm just curious. Is there one trait, like if I had to say describe one trait that you look for in your top people, what would that be? Um, commitment, and in, 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 the, in the shadow of that word commitment, um, what that means to me, the, the word commitment, is that intimacy of, of relationship or, you know, the, the uh, commitment to being authentic. The authenticity of relationship is probably the best way to say it. In in commitment, I look for authenticity of relationship. It means it means we're all going to just have the conversations, whatever they are, good, bad, or indifferent. That nobody's title and nobody's anything is going to get in the way of us saying, doing, and being whoever we need to be, do, and say to to get done what we want to get done. To be in relationship. So I know I know you talked about your yourself during kind of the early third when you were in your early thirties. What one piece of advice would you give your twenty year old self? And why? Oh, you know what I'd say to my 20-year-old self? I'd, he would never hear it, but I would just say <laughs> He would never listen to you. He would never hear it. Yeah, exactly. He'd say, what are you old guy telling me what to do? And I think, you know, I think I got this advice coming up. It's like, just take a deep breath. It's all going to work out. And if you stay committed to what your vision is right now and you work it day to day and you keep reaching out for assistance and help and you'll get there. I think I was panicked and, you know, you just you just, you know, I just don't know if I could have heard. I was, I was in such a hurry. It was like, you know, which is, you know, it's always neat to hear people say, oh, you're so young and so successful. But I, I didn't need to be that, ang- I didn't have, need to have that level of anxiety at that young age. You know what I mean? Right. And you talked about the, even the like couples classes that you go to with your mm-hmm. wife. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you maintain that balance between work and personal life? I mean, you're running a, a large company, even though you're running the strategy side and more now. But how do you make sure that that happens? Yeah, I, I, we, my wife and I apply the same uh, philosophy to our personal life. So we, we see a counselor from time to time to stay on track. We set visions for our relationship. We set visions for our family. We sit down and have the conversations about, we just, in fact, we're just sitting down now about what we want to accomplish uh, for 2018 uh, experiences. with. We have, I have a four and a, se- a seven-year-old, so still young kids. And what kind of experiences do we want to have as a family this year? Uh, we bought a boat a few years back and we just got an upgrade of that boat. And, and we're talking about, you know, what experiences do we want to have with the boat? And, and, and it's just interesting. So we, we apply the same philosophy about, you know, communication and humanity and relationship. What do we want to accomplish? Well, I think that's good for, again, for the listeners to hear that, hey, sit down and say, hey, we strategize a lot with our companies. Let's strategize with the family and say, mm-hmm. you know, what do we want to achieve? Where do we want to be? What do we want to, um, you know, feel along the way? And I think that's great advice for me as well, by the way. I'm listening to that. So I may go home and do that do that this week and, and talk to the family about kind of what we want to achieve this year. Um, so, you know, is there someone who had a significant impact on you as a leader, like a specific individual? I know you talked about the counselor, but even before that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a few, and I'll go way back. I'll go back to uh, – I had a difficult uh, – uh, some very difficult experiences coming up in life. And I will go back to my high school football 
coach probably helped save my life and set me gave me helped give me the confidence or a platform to build the confidence in in myself uh just an amazing man clay far is his name and um is he still alive by the way yeah and then actually i i donated some money to my school and i think they named the football stadium after him or named some part of the football field after him but just had a huge impact on my life and and that belief just as a young man that's struggling emotionally struggling or just personally with all the stuff that goes on sometimes in our lives of family and and he was there and he just showed up big and he just he made a it's it's a it's a typical story you hear about this but it was true for me it just he had a huge impact in my life um so i really hope he gets to hear this because what i mean come on to have somebody say that about no, your I've life no i've told him i've yeah, told him i've that's I've, great. I've told him yeah no i it's i love that uh, yeah he had a huge impact on me yep absolutely so in, and then and then okay. you know going on in life uh uh, you know, even Mark and Rand, the, the, um, Mark Van Ness was a was a he had a huge impact on me as well uh, when he created Sperry Van Ness. Him and Rand Sperry created uh, Sperry Van Ness. Uh, Mark Van Ness had a big impact on me as well as Rand. Uh, and then it, it keeps going. I mean, I still I get impacted by. I, I love leadership. I love business, and I I think it's one of the greatest games of life. And it's so much fun to hang around and be inspired. And you know, I, I never get tired of it, which I love that. I love that it never gets old and it's always changing and, and it's just always, there's an opportunity every day. So it's just a lot of fun. And, and you know, those two guys, they invested in you, didn't they? I mean, when Absolutely. you were young, I mean, they took a risk with you and, and in turn, it worked out great. Absolutely. And you, you became like, you know, the rock star and then, yep. and they get to hopefully take pride in the success that you've had in your life based on the investment that they had in, in yours. Yep. So, so in that same vein, in my speeches, I asked the audience to answer the question, how do you want your children to describe you to their children? What will your legacy be? So, Mike, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? You know, it's, I think mine's pretty simple. I, 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 I so much want my children to be authentic little thems. I mean, I guess they'll be adults by then. So, but my, my biggest wish for them is that they become their authentic self, that they're not they're not me. They're not their mom necessarily. Certainly, will have impact, obviously, because we're we're helping raise. I mean, we are raising them, but that they find their true passion, their authentic self. That whatever makes them happy, that they be afforded and they create for themselves the opportunity to just pursue, you know, who and what they want to be, while at the same time improving the environment that they're in, the world that they're in. So, if that's if they get that from me, if they can hear that from me, and that's what they say that I gave them, that would be that would be everything. Well, I have a strong feeling they will because it sounds like a lot of people around you are getting that experience. Yeah, and I think that's been part of your success. So, Mike, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been a great conversation, full of positive impact business has on the lives of individuals. Uh, personally, if I can ever help you as you build relationships and bring people together, please just ask, But I, and I'd love to help. But thank you for sharing your story. Your time is truly appreciated. My pleasure, and I appreciate you asking, and uh, uh, c- congratulations on all your success, and thank you. And I really enjoyed your pitch, by the way. I always call it a pitch, but I really enjoyed your share uh, at the Vistage meeting, so thank you very much. Well, thank you. All right. Listeners, My team and I are working on some fun and exciting things coming from the Quiggle Group. So stay tuned for that. It's coming. In the meantime, though, please be sure to subscribe to Garage to Goliath in iTunes or SoundCloud. Don't just listen. Subscribe. Subscribing helps others find the show. Please also leave an honest review. Your reviews help me get better as a host and help make this show better for you. 
And I'd be so grateful to you if you'd share this podcast with others on social media or send a quick email or text about the show to another leader you think would enjoy the podcast and that it would encourage them on their leadership journey. You can help me get the word out by sharing the podcast so that we can continue to build our leadership legacies together. Thank you.